Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Caroline Modaresi Tirani. This is American Metamorphosis. Two hundred and forty four years after its inception, the United States of America remains a highly charged experiment, fizzing with energy, often drifting in opposite directions occasionally combustible. A democratic world order born out of political chaos. In a phenomenon known as the butterfly effect, every incremental change has the power to dramatically alter a course of events. In this case, the trajectory of the nation. An amendment to the constitution, a gunshot in a theatre, a single vote. There are inexplicable consequences to these seemingly singular actions that can belie their interconnectedness. And when it comes to climate change, the cumulative effect of the singular actions America takes means world-altering consequences, a potentially irreversible global metamorphosis. We always talk about how fishermen were conservationists before conservationism was cool. Fishermen wear clothes until they're falling apart. (laughs) They're very practical in regards to what is necessary to, you know, live and get by and succeed and nothing more. Monique Coombs lives on Oars Island, a small fishing community in Maine nestled on the Atlantic Ocean. We have 216 miles of coastline, half the state of Rhode Island, most coastline of any town in the state. Monique is the director of community programs for the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. Her husband is a fisherman, her kids fish, and she spends most of her waking hours working with the fishing communities to advocate for their needs. It might sound cliche, but Monique really does live and breathe her work. Maybe it smells like bait sometimes, but I, I don't mind that because it's um, such a unique and wonderful part of my community. During the summertime, I get to see my husband, um, his helper, and our two kids um, in boats in front of our house working together. Um, that makes me incredibly proud. Day to day, minute by minute, these guys think about fishing in their boats in the ocean almost 24 <laughs> 7. You know, people say fishermen have salt water in their veins. And I think that, you know, that's it's such a cliche thing, if you will. But on the other hand, it's like absolutely true. You know, if a, if a fisherman stops fishing, they don't stop being a fisherman. They're always fishermen. Alone on a tiny lobster skiff, surrounded by miles of freezing Atlantic Ocean, A fisherman from Monique's community is ultimately part of a broader collective, a larger ecosystem, 
and history tells her that a threat to any one fisherman's catch reverberates not only across the industry, but out to our food system. A threat like dogfish. So in the 70s, they put these archaic regulations that limited how many of them could be caught by fishermen for consumption. Um, dogfish is a native species, but it can, be, it almost acts invasive just because they, they swarm these dogfish, like, populate very quickly. What do they look like? I think they look like they have goat eyes. Their eyes are, they're, it almost looks like they're, like, rectangular, and they're, like, they have gray uh, skin, like other shark species. Um, they just sort of look like small rats in the ocean. That's probably, I'm sure some people love them and think they're adorable, but they're, they're not. Okay, so they're, and they were everywhere. They were everywhere. Let's back up for a second. So the ocean's environment is far from simple. Even one ecosystem could have hundreds of intricate food chains within it. But at its most basic, there's a four-part cyclical hierarchy. At the bottom are things like bacteria and algae, which make their own food using photosynthesis. And at the top are species like sharks and whales. In between is a series of natural checks and balances, big fish eating little fish. So when this 1970s regulation kept people from hunting dogfish and the population ballooned, it raised some red flags for fishermen. Throughout the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s, there were a number of fishermen that said the dogfish were eating baby lobsters and baby codfish, and that we should be concerned, especially regarding the codfish population. To Monique's point, an imbalance in the ecosystem, like a resurgent dogfish population, has ripple effects. If cod and lobster are hunted more often by a more populous fish, they can't reproduce. A few decades of this, and the species themselves are in trouble. A scientific study came out in 2020 confirming what fishermen were seeing. Dogfish eat cod. But by then, cod populations were already at record lows. How hard would it have been to investigate that a little bit further or, you know, to think about what the fisherman was saying in a, a little bit more of a productive way. What could we have changed in the past um, for other regulations and other species, you know, to help protect them? Because there's a whole ecosystem in the ocean. You, you affect one thing, you're going to impact another. And nobody knows that better than fishermen. But it isn't just beneath the water where this interconnectedness requires careful observation and thoughtful solutions. How then can the federal government better support communities like yours? It's a very important part of our jobs is to get fishermen a seat at the table, um, whether it's in a council room or part of a policy process or anything. So it starts local, perhaps. It doesn't necessarily have to start with the federal government. For sure. It starts municipally. It starts in the state. But it's also making space for fishermen at the table and not stopping there. So it's creating an action plan to implement the knowledge and experience that fishermen have into any kind of process in a meaningful way that could actually impact change or an outcome. 
we're revisiting these old regulatory battles because in Maine, where people and environment are so interdependent, the community has had to grapple with complicated resource preservation and accountability challenges. How leaders approached them and the importance of including impacted communities in the conversation has relevance outside of this microcosm. Relevance to the global climate crisis. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a new limited series podcast produced weekly in partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. We've been examining the very foundation of democracy, the peaceful transition of presidential power, and exploring how the obstacles and opportunities faced by new administrations can inform how we tackle our most consequential problems. Our home, Earth, is in danger. We've heard how, despite our often fractious government, Americans have rallied around issues that transcend politics 11, 10, and have transformed the country and the world. In this final episode, we look at leadership amid the most urgent and underlying transformation of our time, climate change. Our team and FEMA continue to monitor the situation in Texas. The was responsible for 50 deaths in the United States, possibly 20 billion in damage. Sadly, these wildfires and the devastation they cause are utterly predictable. None of us will ever forget the blood red sky. It's clear that we've reached an inflection point. Each year, the new irreversible and potentially catastrophic realities of climate change reveal themselves as our planet continues to warm. And slowly, businesses and governments around the world are recognizing that if we're going to survive climate change as a species, we need to go all in for a clean energy revolution and fast. It's something that President Joe Biden is acutely aware of. From his transition into the presidency to the moments he actually took office, Biden got to work reversing years of environmental walkbacks by the Trump administration. In his first few weeks in office, Biden had the United States rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, he appointed John Kerry as climate czar, and he imposed a temporary hold on the drilling of public lands. There's a moment in time when I think there's at least an appetite to engage on this. Rich Lesser is the CEO of Boston Consulting Group and the chief advisor for the Alliance of CEO Climate Leaders at the World Economic Forum. But the forces of division are incredibly strong and so speed on some of these topics is really essential. I guess I, I'm thinking a little bit of momentum here. On April 30th, it'll uh, hit... President Biden's 100th day in office. Now, there are things that you want to see out of the Biden administration within this first 100-day period in order to then set up longer-term goals. Look, the challenge we're facing on climate uh, right now is that there are actions that the Biden administration can take on its own, largely regulatory actions, that will allow it to show its seriousness 
But regulatory actions have two challenges. One is it's often not an efficient way to get to the kind of solutions we need and often creates tremendous friction and resistance from the business community. And second, it is not necessarily long-lasting. It can be reversed a few years later, as we saw four years ago. Historically, defenders of the environment and the economy have been at odds across both the public and private sectors. But Rich says that that's changing. Climate action is just as necessary for government and business as it is for the planet. It's why BCG and many of the companies it advises has committed to becoming net zero by 2030. The good news is when I talk to CEOs, they mostly get it. You go sector by sector, they all see that if you don't take this seriously, you really risk losing competitive advantage in the years ahead. But it's still easier to invest in environments that are encouraging of it, providing support, changing the metrics of what we measure, changing incentives, uh, pricing carbon. It's so much easier to invest. That's such a more enticing and energizing path to try to bring the business community in around the world. That's the kind of competition I think our government needs to be really aware of and to really do everything it can to encourage companies to understand and act on it in the years ahead. So this isn't an argument to say we don't need regulation. It's the relative weight of using regulation as a solution versus using market forces, innovation, and other elements to try to get us there faster and more boldly. To Rich's point, the scale of change needed to adapt our entire economy to the climate crisis can't just come from the private or public sectors. It really does require a coordinated, collaborative effort. To better understand how to take on this massive goal, let's look at how we approached a microscopic puzzle. Studying human DNA was inefficient and never going to get the kind of comprehensive view that was going to be necessary to transform how we understand the fundamentals of our blueprint and how we could harness that information to better improve the practice of medicine. We had to be audacious and we had to be risk-taking um, and, and it was not the moment in time to be conservative. Dr. Eric Green is the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the US National Institutes of Health. The work that he and his colleagues have done in genomics for the last several decades continues to impact science and medicine in myriad ways, including the way that we've been fighting the coronavirus. In a field like genomics, we're probably um, prototypes in terms of collaboration, team science, data sharing, very much progressive attitudes. In many ways, we really helped serve as leaders at NIH over the last 30 years in building international partnerships and being very aggressive at data sharing, pre-publication, and so forth. You know, we, we take pride in the fact that within hours of generating that first coronavirus viral sequence of its RNA genome, that was released publicly, you know, it was openly released. That's a play right out of the playbook of the Genome Project, that you quickly release the data because everybody benefits. And uh, I think we helped change the culture of science in that way as a field. But in 1988, Dr. Green was just a recent MD-PhD graduate deciding where he wanted his career to take him. And at that time, there was an emerging push to study the human genome, to sequence the 23 chromosomal pairs of DNA and essentially find out what makes humans human. And I uh, graduated and I saw this incredible opportunity of this brand new field 
that might give better insights about differences in our DNA blueprint that might be used to improve the practice of medicine. The Human Genome Project, jointly conceived in 1988 by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy, was funded by Congress to do just that. I, I, I want to be clear about one thing. Not everybody was on board with the idea of the Human Genome Project. It was a fairly controversial idea in the biomedical research community. Why was it so controversial? Well, there was there were some that sort of thought that um, the time was right to roll up our sleeves and try to read out these three billion letters. But there was also a lot of concerns about big science projects in biology. When I was talking to mentors and various scientists who I viewed as role models at the time and telling them I was beginning to get involved in genomics, some cautioned me that it could be career ending. And I guess I was willing to take the risk and recognize that this was a a sort of once in a lifetime opportunity. It wasn't just a personal risk. Congress invested $3.5 billion in a scientific endgame that was far from guaranteed. It sounds like with the Human Genome Project is that it was reliant, in a sense, on technologies that didn't yet exist or weren't yet fully formed. The dawn of genomics, you know, 1987, and even the beginning of the Human Genome Project in 1990, you know, it was a very different world. I mean, there was barely a functional internet. Um, And yet the Genome Project got off the ground, uh, recognizing that somehow all this was going to happen because the technologies would slowly but surely become available and were going to be essential for doing something as audacious as reading out all the three billion letters in human DNA. Not only was sequencing the genome a high-cost, high-stakes affair, it had other hurdles. The scale of governmental involvement was unprecedented for the field, as was the level of global scientific collaboration. Biomedical research up until that point had been almost exclusively done sort of lab by lab, individual investigators toiling away, solving individual problems that were very hypothesis-based. And whereas other fields of science and physics and astronomy and various other places were more comfortable with big science, big collaborations, biologists were not. And so there was considerable concern at this idea of taking a large amount of money and putting it into a very big project that would be highly managed, would not be hypothesis driven, and uh, might end up being incredibly unsuccessful and certainly was being cast by some as not particularly intellectual. Do you feel like the Human Genome Project could have come about had there not been government backing? I can't imagine it happening any other way, in part because if you didn't do it in the government, and let's say, for example, you, it was done in the private sector, then you would worry that, that you could get commercialization of that information. And, and sort of the core tenet of the Human Genome Project was generate this information and share it with the world, share it with everybody, because everybody will benefit from it and nobody should have any Um, you know, advanced access or secret access or special access to that fundamental information. So it truly was um, a a global effort, multiple countries, and probably thousands of people by the time you add them all up. We recognize from the very beginning of the Human Genome Project, even at the planning stage, it needed to be international. This was not going to be a competition among countries. This is humanity's genome. 
countries and businesses have been trying and failing to collaborate on climate change for decades. But Rich Lesser says that there is still time for leaders to push past discord and short-term fears and reach for long-term solutions. It's on leadership to focus on the biggest fear. The biggest fear is not that we don't understand climate change. We don't know it's important. I mean, there's been enough said that most Americans, most people around the world get that. The biggest fear is that people have is that, yes, it's a really big problem, but what's it going to do to me in the short term? Because if my job disappears or my economy goes down or the prices double in cost, then it feels like, well, yeah, I know I should do something about it, but I... I have too much short-term stress to believe I can do something about it. And we need to help people get beyond that. We, we can't overlook that some of the most marginalized communities are some of the most impacted and, of course, some of the most least responsible as well. How should the government, how should business, uh, pri the private sector, keep the least among us in mind when we're thinking about tackling this issue? I'm so glad you raised that. And it's just such an important point. And, you know, particularly when you think about what the cost of carbon intensive products are as a share of people's income, it's a disproportionately high share of income on average for those who can often least afford it. On average, the economic impact of large amounts of carbon reduction, say the first 80%, give or take, is not so economically costly. When we've looked at it, we looked at it very deeply in Germany. We actually found they could reduce 80% of the carbon in the German economy by 2050 and see a small net rise in GDP. So it was not that there was such an economic burden on a society. It was that it was disproportionately felt. Some sectors actually saw growth. Some sectors saw themselves doing better because of a low carbon economy. Others were hit really hard. So the challenge is not that there's this huge overall burden on society. The challenge is it could be made relatively neutral, particularly as we invest in innovation, but we have to manage it in a way so that we're supporting those who are disproportionately affected. That is a hard job. There are industries as well as communities, governments as well as constituents, who will be impacted differently by the myriad complexities of climate change. But that doesn't mean it's every person for themselves. We, we cannot expect that each company and each country just acting totally as an independent player will take bold enough action and will go far enough. Economics alone will allow us to make progress absent any working together because simply power, you know, wind power and solar power are much cheaper now than they were before. So that switch will happen to some degree absent, um, uh, you know, uh, cooperation or support from governments or different kinds of legislation. But we will not go far enough, fast enough without cooperation. It seemed for the last four years as though the United States was actually leaning towards protectionism over collaboration, um, America first over uh, America trying to sort of help its neighbours and, and rise and bring in everyone up together. How do you see collaboration fitting into a situation where globalisation has kind of taken a bit of a knock over the last four years? It takes a long time to build trust and it can be destroyed in a very short period of time. And the divisions that we see in society, certainly in the U.S., but not just the U.S., are, are, quite, are quite deep. And so I do think it's going to be a long-term journey to rebuild a spirit of trust and international cooperation. 
But we don't need to solve for everything at once. This overall journey is about, of course, reducing the damage from climate change, which is in the interest of ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. We will make it easier on ourselves to economically thrive if we embrace this journey in a smart way, dealing with inequality, dealing with the challenges in different sectors, than if we duck it for the next five or 10 years. George Bernard Shaw, speaking as an Irishman, summed up an approach to life. Other people, he said, see things and say, why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? Creating bold change at speed requires leaders to embrace risk. And when it comes to the climate crisis, natural disasters and water shortages are already showing that the riskiest action is inaction. The National Institute of Health's Dr. Eric Green understands that some goals are worth a gamble. It was a, a, a good number of people at my stage of career development who were cautioned against getting involved in the Human Genome Project. Um, some listened and, and many of us did not. Why didn't you listen to them? Because I truly believed that if successful, a project like the Human Genome Project could be truly transformative. It could be transformative for all of research, and it potentially could be transformative for medicine. You either seize the moment or you don't. The scale of that transformative risk is still being measured today. Our sequencing of the human genome has shaped modern medicine and is at the beginning of understanding ourselves from an inward perspective. Do you also see the Human Genome Project as almost like on a social level, kind of transcending maybe some of the prejudices that we have for one another? I mean, this feels like almost like a very, very clear equalizer in a sense. So there's no question that from the beginning of genomics and certainly from the beginning of the Human Genome Project, I think those of us participating in it and the people who planned it recognized that there was something very intimate about doing this uh, because we were looking at humanity's blueprint. You know, on the one hand, it does become a bit of an equalizer. You know, you and I are 99.9% identical. And when you think about that and you think about across all of humanity, every person is 99.9% identical to anyone else, it sort of melts away a lot of the differences that we all perceive um, and uh, recognize that at a, at a core, we're all more, far, far, far more similar than we are different. It's true, we are far more similar than we are different. But what's universal doesn't always mean equal. And when it comes to climate change, that couldn't be more true. Monique Coombs again. It's, it's important, you know, for people to remember these are people, in essence, risking their lives, if you will, to bring healthy, sustainable seafood to shore for us all to eat that are impacted by some of these things that are happening because of climate change in a way that puts their lives at risk. And you, know, because of warming waters and, the, and these changes, they're also being forced to go further offshore. As we continue to make inroads in addressing climate change, some industries and communities are facing dual front lines, the impact of a changing climate, as well as a shifting economy. Such is the case for places like Ore Island in Maine, a coastal town where a small grey fish caused a major ripple effect, 
an even bigger change is underway. You know, we're thinking in our community about um, sea level rise and, you know, flood zones and how we're going to adapt to these things and what kind of changes we want to see in the community. There's so many people in the United States that haven't even seen the ocean. Um, And so how do you get people to care about something that they're just so unfamiliar with or, or not at all connected with? both in regards to fighting climate change and as well as supporting fishermen and, and seafood in a significant way. We need to be more mindful of our own responsibility to the ocean's health. And so I think that if we want to create space for fishermen at the table in a very impactful way, that will mean that people in coastal communities and the rest of the country will have to take a bigger responsibility for how our actions impact the ocean. The butterfly effect suggests that every incremental change, from a truncated presidential transition to a lunar landing, from an assassination to an insurrection, has the power to dramatically alter what the world will look like next. Whether it's sharing a map of human DNA or the repopulation of a pesky fish species, the decisions made in a boardroom or the Oval Office We need to understand these disparate decisions have collective consequences. To get to a truly clean energy economy requires a truly united metamorphosis. Every one of us, whether we're leading a company, whether we're leading, whether we're a political leader in Congress or in in the administration, needs to look in the mirror and say, what are we doing to try to work together on solutions to our most important challenges that will allow us to show that we can evolve. And despite a world of greater division, the challenges that we hear all the time in media, social media, the fractioning of our country in different ways, how how do we do that? It's a big test. It's a big test. And it often comes down, like many things, to a small number of people making hard choices. Two hundred and forty-four years after its inception, the United States of America remains a highly charged experiment. And even now, I'm still in a state of shock. Important symbolism and imagery of the peaceful transfer of power. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Well, this is why you don't have one experiment. You have many, many, many experiments. Fizzing with energy, often drifting in opposite directions, occasionally combustible, a democratic world order born out of political chaos. It was a remarkable storm. It shook the world. Intensely important. The response has to adapt. There are amazing people who have fought. That's the dilemma of leadership. But there were equally people who fought against that. There are myriad moments in American history where the shifts that we made in policy, in president, in behavior, in innovation, were unrecognizable against the world that we had been living in. And still, we transformed. Ignition sequence start. Six. This American metamorphosis is not about the end, but about a constant spurring renewal, 
It's the hope for something more, and it's the process to create something better. It's the realization that the systems we've built are never bigger than the future we dream of, that the idea of America is not broken, but simply unfinished. We are still growing, evolving, transforming. Because 244 years after its inception, the United States remains a highly charged experiment, a beacon of hope for something more, a process to create something better. Tirani, you've been listening to American Metamorphosis. A huge thanks to our Atlantic Rethink production team, P. Barguti, Eleanor Bell Fox, Emily Beaner, Christian Nielsen, Devin Rochford, Jordan Teicher, and Kim Walker. And of course, to our audio engineer and editor, Evan Viola, and our theme composer, Nicholas Marks. And of course, this couldn't have happened without our partners at Boston Consulting Group, in particular, Brooke Boyke, Catherine Manfrey, Nidhi Sina, Danny Werfel, and the entire BCG leadership team. Special thanks, too, to those folks who kept us honest and on time. Callie Gregg, Maddie Loosebrock, Monica Schmelzer, to all of our guests and experts, a big thank you. And of course, a big thank you too to my five-month-old daughter, Elahe Modoresi Randazzo, for sleeping just enough to let me record. And lastly, thank you to you, our listeners. Subscribe to American Metamorphosis wherever you get your podcasts and stay tuned for more this summer.